0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli here today with James Ang, Senior Director for Old Capital Lending, to discuss the various loan products available to multifamily and commercial real estate investors, what you'll need to qualify, bad boy carve-outs, and much more. Are you interested in investing in the Dallas-Fort Worth area? If you are, then you'll want to know about the Old Capital Multifamily Conference hosted by James Ang coming up on October 24th to 25th, 2019. This conference is focused on owners of B and C class multifamily properties in the Dallas, Fort Worth, and surrounding metro areas in Texas. At this event, you'll meet with multifamily listing brokers in the Dallas, Fort Worth area, network with local property management companies, and learn how they're creating value in the B and C class space. Ask Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and local lenders about financing multifamily properties. Hear from top general partners about the current multifamily market and meet with top listing brokers, management companies, lenders, and owners in the Texas multifamily industry. You can get $50 off your tickets by visiting www.oldcapitalconference.com and using promo code REALESTATECPA. Again, that's www.oldcapitalconference.com and use promo code REALESTATECPA for $50 off your tickets. We'll see you there, but for now, let's jump right into today's episode. So James, thanks for coming on the show today. Could you give our listeners a little bit of a background on yourself and how you got started with Old Capital?
2: Sure. Thanks a lot for having me, Tom. Um, So James Zang, I'm actually based in Dallas, Texas. I uh, grew up down in Houston, went to school in Austin at University of Texas, and then uh, did finance there, spent 10 years at G Capital. And while I was at G Capital, I was a loan underwriter for commercial real estate products. So office, industrial, retail, self-storage, every sort of your four major food groups, they like to call them, within the commercial space. And I was looking at investing in multifamily in 2014. And Old Capital had a huge presence in sort of the Texas area, especially Dallas. And so I came over to Old Capital when Blackstone decided to buy GE's entire portfolio of commercial real estate Of their loan book and their equity book, and so I've been at Old Capital now for the last four years. Old Capital really specializes in commercial real estate, but especially multifamily. So in 2018, we did about a billion dollars worth of loans. Probably 75, 80 percent of that was multifamily. And you know, since starting at Old Capital, I've done about 500 million in loans, and most of that being multifamily. So very familiar with the space. And in the last three or four years, I've invested in about 23 deals as a passive as well. So I like to look at deals as an investor, but my main focus is originating um, new loans.
0: Nice. Nice. Before we just jump right in um, to the different types of debt products available to uh, the multifamily space, uh, just a quick question on... But would you say from your experience that the different types of loan products differ from multifamily to say self-storage or say to office?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, while I was at GE, we did bridge loans and CMBS loans. And that was really... So that's shorter term, three to five-year loans. And we did a lot of office, a lot of retail, a lot of industrial. And I was always concerned, like, how come we don't do enough multifamily? And the reason we weren't doing a lot of multifamily at GE was because Fannie and Freddie are so aggressive on their lending in the space. Like They provide the best financing and that is only really allowed for multifamily. And so Office doesn't have a Fannie and Freddie, retail, self-storage, none of those guys get good non-recourse financing. And so when you look at, um, let's say an office building, and it's $3 million, you wouldn't be able to get a non-recourse loan on that you have to go up to $5 million to even do a non-recourse loan for a lot of these property types outside of multifamily. Whereas Fannie and Freddie will go down to like a million dollars. And typically, if you have good third-party property management, you can also get non-recourse financing. So the financing for multifamily is significantly better than almost all property types out there.
0: Got it. So that's probably why multifamily space is so hot. Uh, a lot of uh, um, well, a lot greater chances of getting the, the financing a lot more favorably too. When it comes to the different types of loan products that are available to multifamily investors or, or multifamily syndicates, could you talk about what those debt products are and some of the requirements, some of the borrowers we need to have for each of those products?
2: Yeah, I really like to think about it in sort of three questions. Number one. This is what I ask if somebody calls me up and says, hey, I'm looking at this deal. And these are the three questions I asked them. Number one, what is the occupancy of the property? Is it stabilized or is it a heavy value add? That's question number one. So stabilized is 90% occupied or higher. So that's number one. Number two is what is your experience? So have you ever done this before? Are you going to sign with anybody who has prior multifamily experience? And number three, what is your net worth and liquidity? So net worth and liquidity is the third thing. So when I know those three things, essentially I can tell you what type of product would fit. All right. So you give me the answer to those three. And then essentially there's four different loan products. The first one that we'll go through is really like your bank recourse loan. Second one will be Fannie Mae. Third will be Freddie Mac. And the fourth will be a bridge loan, but it'll be a non-recourse bridge. Those are your four main types of loans for multifamily products. So let's start with bank recourse loan. This is, you know, if you went down to Bank of America or Wells Fargo and said, Hey, I'm buying a 20 unit deal, I need um, 75% leverage, they would give you that loan and it would be recourse against you. So you would be personally liable for that that deal. If there's any deficiency on a foreclosure, you would be liable. Typically, this is three to five years in terms of loan term. And then also your fixed rate right now is probably about 6%. And then your amortization is going to be 20 to 25 years, depending on the age of the property. So that is really sort of like your first time investor or if the property is 75, 80% occupied, recourse bank loan works super well. So a lot of people do that. The second type is Fannie Mae. So Fannie Mae, the first question I ask is around occupancy. So Fannie Mae is going to want 90% occupied or higher. That's going to be the first rule. So if you, if you send in a deal and the occupancy is lower than that, it's really not going to work well for Fannie Mae. And then Fannie Mae is going to have a minimum of a million dollar loan amount. And then also, they want somebody who has experience. So you have either signed on a Fannie Mae loan, or you have 12 months of experience at least owning something else. Something that you've invested in, something that you've signed on the loan for, that you're managing or asset managing, they want to see that experience. So that's Fannie Mae. And Fannie Mae has the best loan terms essentially. So I mean they're gonna be 10 years, 12 years fixed. At right now, you could probably get four and a half percent on average because 10-year treasury has come down. So four and a half to four seventy-five in that range. And then that's fixed for 10 years, and then you're getting three to five years interest only and then 30 year amortization. And it's all non-recourse. And so when people see that and compared to almost every other product they're just blown away because it's so much better than what anybody else get. And um, the third type is Freddie Mac. So a lot of people, when they're buying their first deal, will look at the Freddie Mac Small Balance Loan Program. So that's what I'll talk about. Some of the big differences, it's very similar to Fannie. Um, 90% occupancy, 5, 7, 10-year loan terms, interest only for 3 to 5 years, 30-year amortization thereafter. And they typically have what's called a step-down prepayment penalty which people like and then the only difference between Fannie and Freddie is Freddie will not allow you to roll the rehab in on the small balance loan. And then the fourth is the bridge loan. So non-recourse bridge loans is $5 million and above and that is for experienced guys who have done three, four loans and they're looking for higher leverage. So they're looking for 75 to 80% leverage on a non-stabilized deal. So you're typically 75-85% occupied. And you're coming in doing a lot of rehab. And then 18 to 24 months later, you'll refinance or sell that asset. So those are the four loan product types for multifamily.
0: Got it. Guys, Got it. so it sounds like the second option is the most favorable, the most desirable of them all, but it all kind of just depends on where you are with your experience and also how much heavy lifting is needed in the deal. If you're going to do a complete say, value add, right? Complete the vacate everybody. You're probably looking at the fourth option.
2: Yeah, the bridge loan. And yeah, the the one other thing that I forgot to mention is across all of these, you really need a net worth and liquidity. So net worth, they want the group's net worth to be above the loan amount. So add up everybody's net worth needs to be greater than the loan amount. And then post-close liquidity. So after the down payment, how much liquidity does the group have, the sponsorship group? That needs... The loan amount are greater.
1: Now, what was it, Freddie May or Freddie Mac
2: has the better product? So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are pretty similar. What you, yeah, what you have to look at is where the property is located, and then also Freddie Mac small balance loans are typically range from a million to seven and a half million. Okay, so some some of the properties might just be too big, and you might go Fannie Mae at that point.
1: Yeah. So, but Fannie Mae has the ninety percent occupancy requirement.
2: Both of them, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac.
1: Oh, they both do. Okay. So if I'm getting a loan and and I want to go that route, I mean, is there any flexibility at all? Let's say I'm super experienced. I've been doing this for years and I'm picking up a property that's like 85% occupied. Is is that something they're just not even gonna look at? So
2: Fannie Mae, you can go in and ask for a waiver. And so anything that's sort of, so Fannie Mae has a box. If it fits in the box, Fannie Mae sort of checks the box and you're good to go. If anything falls outside of that box, right? So if occupancy is slightly lower, or you need additional CapEx dollars, or one of your key principles is you know not a US citizen, there's a lot of different waivers that can go into Fannie Mae. It's just not typical. So Fannie Mae might kick it out. And so you might go down the road, have hard money in the deal. And then Fannie Mae says, No, thank you. We're not going to take the deal. So you just have to be a little bit more careful, especially depending on where you are in the country. In Dallas you know, most people are putting one to 2% hard money day one on these deals. And so they want to be pretty certain that that loan is going to come through um, on the deal. Yeah, it makes sense.
0: So a lot of our clients ask about the bad boy carve out, you know, you sure. said that the Fannie and Freddie I believe for both non-recourse, non-recourse loans, sure. non-recourse yeah. and uh, non-recourse for everybody who may not know means that you're not personally liable for the loan, but uh, there's something called a bad boy carve out that sometimes does make you liable. Is that, uh, could you just talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Essentially there's a list in your loan agreement. So your loan agreement is like 110 pages <laughs> on two pages. There's a list of stuff that essentially say, if you do any of these things, then. Your loan goes from non recourse to recourse. And so those things are essentially, I mean, they're, they're nicknamed bad boy carve outs, but essentially the general partner doing anything that's going to negatively impact that property, right? So if you, let's say there's a fire on the property and you get $500,000 in insurance, but instead of fixing the property, you keep the $500,000, right? And you just leave the property as is. So there's, you know, misapplication of insurance proceeds. There's, you know, maybe you collect all the rent, but instead of paying your taxes or insurance or your repair guy or your payroll, you just keep all the money, right? So they want you to sort of maintain the property to a certain standard. They're going to ask for quarterly reports from you. They're going to ask for you to fill out sort of annual personal financial statements. So all these things that are in the loan documents, you have to abide by. Or the deal could go into default, or the deal could turn into recourse. so essentially, if you do everything that you should do as a syndicator, as a general partner, something that you know your limited partners would want you to be doing, then you should have no issue with the bad boy carve out
1: and the bad boy carve outs can affect loss allocation, so it does affect you from a tax perspective. it can theoretically give the gp who the general partners who are Signing on to these bad boy carve-outs, it could give them basis in the entity. So it could actually give you the ability to take losses. Generally, that's not going to be the case unless one of the bad boy carve-outs is realistic. You're going to have to look at the at-risk rules. So get with your CPA to figure out what those steps are going to be. And that's all I'm going to say on that because that can get extremely complicated (laughs) from a CPA perspective, unless you have anything else that you want to touch on.
2: No, I mean, I think um, one of the benefits of investing passively definitely is sort of your depreciation um, that comes through as an investor, but then as a general partner, you can get even more depreciation. So I think yeah. that's that's a great thing.
1: Yeah, you can definitely get some basis if you are guaranteeing loans or you are uh, signing bad boy carve outs. Now, something else that I wanted to talk about a little bit off script here, uh, but along the same lines. So we see a, we've had, we work with a lot of syndicates. We work with a lot of GPs, general partners. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we help from a consulting perspective. So we'll, we'll consult on pretty much like a deal by deal basis. We'll help them analyze everything from their operating agreement. Is that maximizing tax benefits for themselves and their investors from their lending agreement? Are you checking all the boxes from a tax and an accounting standpoint? Okay. We'll help them with investor reports and tax strategies and all that jazz. But on the lending agreement specifically, I can't tell you how many times, it literally blows my mind, how many times these folks sign agreements and you know, you you scroll down to section three point whatever and it's all the financial reports that you have to deliver on a monthly basis. Sure. And uh, it's like 20 reports on a monthly basis that the syndicate has to give the lender. Okay. And then the, the subsection to that section says, if you don't give us these financial reports, by the way, by the 15th of the next month, you're automatically in default of your loan. We have had so many syndicates come to us when we do this consulting and they've been in default for months and they don't know it because they haven't been sending the correct reports. Now their lenders or whatever broker they're working with tells them, you just need to send me a p a balance sheet, statement of cash flows and the leasing report.
2: Right, so the, main, the main items, sure.
1: Yeah, so they, they take that. And what we typically do is we just call the lender up and we say, hey, you know, what... This is what's going on. Can we get like in writing confirmed that that's all you need? And it's typically not an issue. But do you see that stuff? I mean, sometimes the I feel like the lenders don't even know what's in their document.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, I'm not going to say that they get everything. A lot of times, it's they have it in the loan agreement, but the question is whether or not they enforce it. And so, as a general partner, what I would do is match that up with what's coming from my third party property management company. And make sure that you can deliver all those reports because a lot of the loan agreements, especially Fannie and Freddie, are sort of your standard loan docs. And so the same one that you know they used in Atlanta they're going to use in Dallas mm-hmm. can't really change any any of that. like it's going to be an amendment and it's going to have to be you know reviewed by three legal teams. So typically it's not worth it to change something unless you know there's something material that you think you can't comply with.
1: Yeah. And, and I know that you're not an attorney and full disclosure, none of us are attorneys and so don't take any of this as legal advice, please. But let's say that there is a report in that actual loan agreement that hasn't been sent at all okay, or sure. ever, but the, the the lender themselves, like they're not asking for it. They, it wasn't even in that email emailed list that they sent yeah. over originally. What risk is the GP at? Um, and maybe you can't answer that question because again, we are not attorneys, but is there ever an opportunity where the lender might actually look back and say, Oh, you actually haven't been giving me this report. So, um, you're in default. I mean, I, I
2: haven't run into that. So the, the reality is the lenders in these deals, they don't actually want the property. So they're not they're looking for, they can yeah, they're not looking for a reason exactly. to, to take these deals over and, and run these properties, right? They really want to, they want you to succeed as a general partner. Um, you know, they're your biggest partner in the deal. So you want to, they're putting up a lot of the money. And, you know, when I was at GE Capital, we did bridge loans. And so those are three to five-year loans. And I was there from 2006 to 2015. So right in the middle of that, 2008, 2009, 2010, a lot of these loans matured, right? These bridge loans came up. They tried to go refinance them somewhere else. They couldn't get them refinanced. And GE said, look, uh, we don't want to keep the property. Uh, or we don't want to take over the property. You can keep the property. We'll give you another three years on the loan as long as you're paying the debt service. And as long as you paid the debt service. And so what I saw during that time was the property types that had diversified sort of income streams. So when I look at a hundred unit apartment compared to you know a office building with five tenants, those office buildings, we had to take back because one, two, three of the tenants would go out. The general partner would look at us and say, guys, I would love to keep the property, but I don't even want the property. <laughs> I can't pay the debt service. I'm not coming out of pocket for all of these, for the debt service, for the taxes. But the ones such as multifamily, self-storage, you know, the occupancy maybe went from 95 to 90. The rents came down a little bit. But the debt service was still fine. They were still making their monthly mortgage payment. The general partner wasn't coming out of pocket. And so we just said, all right, instead of maturity in 2010, we'll add on three more years. And Mm -hmm. so they would push it out to 2013. And then when 2013 came, they said, all right, we went back to Fannie Mae and refinanced and paid off our bridge loan. And so multifamily and self-storage were the two sort of income streams that kept coming in and could make the mortgage payment in that recession. And so that's why I looked heavily at investing in multifamily 2014.
1: That actually makes me feel a lot better because I I get these guys that send me their loan documents. I'm like, great. What what reports have you been sending? They send me the reports. I'm like, oh, man. That's not going to cover. Not good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that makes me feel a lot better. And that kind of aligns with my experience, too, because, like I said, we call these guys up. They're just like, yeah, I'll put it in writing. It's fine. It's not a big deal. And they do want to work with the GPs at the end of the day. But it's good to actually hear that from somebody that has very good experience in the industry. So, Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, so it sounds like at the end of the day, the bottom line is if you pay your bills, you pay your debt service, you're gonna be looked at favorably and you're gonna you're gonna have some flexibility there, perhaps. Um, yeah, there's really no reason for them to come after you if you're making your payments. Yeah. So so everybody out there who gets these loans, just make sure you're making your debt payments.. Yeah. Should be all right. And now, you know just looping into some depreciation talk here. I know we, we talked about that a little bit before you know, a lot of times we work with these multifamily investors or these syndicates, and we recommend that they do a cost segregation study, uh, which of course increases the depreciation expense. And now with the 100% bonus depreciation, a lot of times that that vastly increases their depreciation expense. And one of their concerns often is, is if I do this study, how is this going to affect my ability to get a loan at some point? And I guess the question is for you is, have you seen cost segregation studies or depreciation impact, you know, someone's eligibility to get like one of these loans.
1: So I guess that would also just to elaborate be the non-asset based loans, right? Like where the net worth is not coming into play. So obviously if net worth is coming into play, then I guess it wouldn't be a, that big of a determining factor at that point.
2: Well, um, so we talked about the four loan types, right? So we have the recourse bank loan, Fannie, Freddie, and then non-recourse bridge. On all of your non-recourse loans, the depreciation has no impact, okay? Because Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and your non-recourse bridge, they are looking very heavily at the property. So 75 to 80% of their investment decision on whether or not they're going to give that loan is on the property. They do not ask for your tax return on these deals, on Fannie, Freddie, non-recourse bridge. They focus on the property's financials, how much capex are you putting in the deal, what is your experience doing this, They want you to hit that net worth and liquidity requirements that we talked about earlier, but they are not concerned about you personally coming out of pocket with your money to pay for the the bill on this thing, right? Whereas the recourse bank loan, even though it doesn't necessarily... You would think that they would add back to depreciation on some of these recourse bank loans. The banker just looks at the tax return and if you show a big, you know, negative two hundred thousand for two thousand eighteen, they probably won't like it. And so your recourse bank loans could be impacted. But if you work with a good recourse bank lender, they understand how real estate works. They understand it's a non cash event, and you're not coming out of pocket two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, that that's you know you actually own a lot of real estate, and you're taking bonus depreciation. But if you go walk into Wells Fargo. And you say, hey, I need a 75% loan to value on my 20-unit deal here in Dallas. And you show them a tax return because they asked for the last three years of tax returns. And you have a 200000 for the last three years. They're just going to say, no, thank you. We're not going to be able to help you. <laughs> so you have to know who you go to on the Recourse Bank side. Because most of the people looking at those deals will not know the difference between a 200000 from real estate and... And I negative 200000 from like another business loss.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of our clients have had mixed responses from lenders regarding depreciation. Like in theory, you should be adding it back. At least that's what we've heard from quite a few lenders. Um, and that's what their practice is. But we, we've had clients get turned down for loans because they have big Absolutely. depreciation expenses. We've also had clients where they they take, they, they'll do like a cost-sex study and have 100% bonus depreciation, have a massive first year write-off Doesn't affect them at all because it just gets all added back because they're working with somebody that knows the ins and outs. And we've also had clients where the lenders are like, "Yeah, we can't take, we can't count 100% bonus depreciation. We can only count your regular depreciation." So it's just like kind of all over the place. At least that's been our experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think on the recourse bank side, everyone's going to underwrite it a little differently. Uh, But for your your Fanny Freddie uh, multifamily loans. And non-recourse bridge loans, they don't even ask for tax returns. Okay. Yeah. They okay. don't even
0: they don't even ask for them. So it doesn't even come up. In the Fannie and the Freddie side, are those those loans are then because they're so packaged and they're so standardized, like you said before with the checking of the box, those loans are then later really resold or something on the, they are. Like, they on are. the secondary yes. market. Okay. Yes. Who do
2: they get resold to? So they actually they sell them off to investors who essentially want that income stream. So I don't know the names of you know every buyer, but essentially when you go out with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae actually takes the loan. So let's say you're doing a $5 million loan and yeah. you need to go lock the interest rate today. They take it out to the market and, and you know someone buys that loan for you know 4.5%. And then you guarantee that income stream for the next 10 years at 4.5% to that investor. And if you pay that off early, though, there is a penalty. And so that's one thing that we didn't talk about. But on Fannie Mae, there's a thing called yield maintenance which is a penalty that essentially pays the rest of the interest for that loan ah, at present time. Got it. The loan off. And so, uh,
1: so are these like typically like private equity funds that are picking these loans up or are they like individual investors or.
2: I actually don't know a lot of the investors behind. Got the, who's yeah. buying the loans because I know Fannie does it sort of individually. So Fannie Mae has what they call delegated underwriters, which is essentially like 20 companies that are allowed to do Fannie Mae loans. And then they work with individual investors, and they usually bid it out. So they'll say, "All right, here's you know twenty million dollar loan in Dallas. Who can give me four and a half percent, four point four? Who can give me the lowest rate?" And then they sell it to that guy, and then they they move on. But Freddie Mac, a lot of times, they will package a group of them up and then sell it off, similar
1: to like a CMBS securitization. Man, I would love to be in a position where I'm only where one, I have twenty million dollars, but two, I'm only looking for four and a half percent. I mean, are you kidding me?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of times, it's you know, it's a portion of a portfolio, right? Yeah. So they have you know, hundred, two hundred million dollars, and you know, they're looking to just have a secure <laughs> rate. And a lot of them really look at, all right, my ten-year treasury is at two and a half percent, and now I can go buy, I can get. 200 basis points more by buying a a loan at 75% on a stabilized multifamily property in Dallas and you're going to give me four and a half, I'll take it. That's how a lot of them are looking at it is that there's collateral there. So I'm protected and then I'll clip, you know, four and a half percent coupon while I wait uh, for you to pay me off.
1: Fascinating. I love it. Um, Kind of switching gears, what tips do you have for multifamily investors and syndicates to increase the chances of getting approved for loans? I think upfront, you have to
2: know those four different loan types. And then you have to know what requirements are available for each one of those. So you got to know what Fannie's looking for, what Freddie's looking for. And then forming your sponsorship group is everything. So the sponsorship group is really the guys who are going to be signed. And in the loan, right? What is everybody's net worth of liquidity? What is their experience? And then I like to look at it as sort of pieces of a puzzle. If that person doesn't fit in your group, I uh, kick them out because the lender is going to underwrite each one of these people, and they're, they're going to check credit, they're going to check bank statements. It's you know, it's pretty invasive. So get to know these people that you're going to partner with, and have your sponsorship group formed upfront because that will be the first question when you get on the call with the lender is what is the org chart, which is, all right, here's your LLC. And then who's your general partner? Your limited partner cannot... That's fine. You can say, look, um, 20% is going to be the general partner, 80% is limited partners. You're going to go raise the money later. That's fine on the limited partner side. But you got to know your general partner structure up
0: front. Yeah, and I guess that's why sometimes you'll see uh, on you know the general partnership side, some partnership groups will bring in someone specifically just to cover the loan balance. So this person has the balance sheet large enough that when they sign that they call it the key principle, I guess, I think is, uh, yeah. is the term for it. And uh, that person will strictly be there to sign a loan for the partnership. Uh, so I guess yeah. that's one way to get around it. Yeah. I mean, the way I like to
2: think about it is really there's four things, right? So someone's got to have the deal. So someone's got to find a deal. Second thing is net worth and liquidity. Third is someone's got to be able to raise the equity. And then fourth is multifamily experience. So those four buckets are check marks. If you don't have all those four, your deal's not going to make it.
1: When should multifamily investors and syndicates, like when do they rope somebody like you in? Is it, is it pretty early on and you're helping kind of consult on a lot of that stuff?
2: Yeah, especially at the beginning. People will sort of set up like 15 minutes with me. We'll sort of walk through... Net worth and liquidity that they currently have. Maybe their sponsorship group. Maybe do like a, a group call and walk through. All right, this is the size property you should be targeting. And then if that amount is, let's say, we get together, you guys only have four million dollars net worth. Like the biggest property you can buy is five million dollars. And they say, well, we want to buy ten million. Then we start start strategizing. All right, who else do we need to bring in so that you're qualified to go after this deal? Because in reality, you are not going to win a deal unless you have that team up front because the listing broker is going to look at you and say, all right, you want to bid on a ten million dollar deal do you have a loan quote from someone who will give you a seven or eight million dollar loan And the only way I'm going to give it to you is if you've actually you can yeah. actually qualify for it
1: uh, interesting.
0: Okay, thanks. So, so it sounds like you're going to go try to get qualified for a loan before you start talking to the brokers. That kind of, like, I guess if you're really serious, that's going to yeah.
2: Work. It's sort of like going to get qualified for a house before you uh, go start making offers on houses. Similar thing. I mean, you want to know how much you can buy mm-hmm. out there, and then um, because what happens is a lot of listing brokers. Let's say they get five offers on a deal. You know, they're usually comfortable with the equity piece. And then they need to figure out the debt piece. And so they'll call us and say, all right, what is this person's experience? Have they closed with you before? What gives them a level of comfort that 75 to 80% of the money is going to show up at closing?
0: Yeah. So thank you for all of that. Um, hopefully out there, if you guys are syndicating deals, uh, you, you have um, some better insight into what type of loan products are out there and available to you. Now, just a quick question for you. We asked this of all our guests uh, what is your favorite mobile app or piece of technology you're currently using in business
2: i actually just learned about zoom but i'm not gonna zoom is too easy cuz you've already watching it but to me it's whatever podcast player you have on your app so i just have like a i have an android podcast player i don't even know what it's called but stitcher itunes whatever it is but to me podcasts have changed sort of my life in the last 3 or 4 years because of you know when i'm at the gym when i'm driving that constant sort of audio to different things. I don't know if we're putting this on podcasts or video, but I think that constant sort of motivation and learning piece is what separates a lot of the best people in this business is the constant education, constant learning across multiple disciplines. Like I was just listening to Warren Buffett's sort of uh, shareholder meeting and, you know, just being able to sit. It's as if you're there. And I think that's, that's a huge way of learning and continue to grow.
0: You know, a hundred percent agree with exactly what I resonate with that as well. A uh, podcast has been a big part of my life, educational wise. That's how I learned a lot about the multifamily business, a lot about the syndication space. It's actually, I found about uh, James Ang and a little capitalist through a podcast. So uh, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, one thing that I always say uh, is kind of related to this is, you know, if you can immerse yourself in what you're trying to learn. Um, you're going to be that much better off. And one way to do that is through podcasts. And and, and then these days, there's so many of them out there. And like you said, from multidisciplinary studies, I guess you could say, you know, if you're listening to a sales podcast and you're a multifamily syndicator, you might pick up a tip that all of a sudden is going to help you, uh, speak to that broker or pick up the phone and maybe speak to that lender or maybe help raise that capital. So podcast definitely very powerful. And just a cheap shout out here. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, Spotify, and pretty much where I'm pretty sure wherever else you can find podcasts, I, uh, we made sure it's there. Um, yeah.
1: And thanks to Tom, a big shout out to Tom here. I posted all over my LinkedIn, but I don't think that people uh, actually listen to our podcast follow me on LinkedIn. So before Tom took over, we were averaging like 2,000, what are the downloads, listens a month or whatever. And then Tom took over in September. And the podcast, we, we've done a show a week very consistently. We've had great guests on. And now we have 17,000 listens a month. So uh, awesome. hats off to Tom, Did a great job. Yeah, podcast, definitely a great tool.
2: Yeah, Tom, two things on uh, your previous comment, though. Um, I, can't, I think Dave Ramsey quoted someone was saying like, you know, you'll be the same person you are today, except for you know a year from now, except for the books you read and the people you meet, and I like to say, and the podcast you listen to now. So oh, those yeah. three things are huge differentiators in my mind. And um, on the other point, I think what and somebody else said this around like it's one thing to be good at like let's say you're in the top you know twenty percent of accounting. Or financing. That's one thing, right? But then if you are in the top 20% of two or three different fields, that's how you get to the top 1% of your field. And so, what I have tried to do is I was pretty good at financing, I was pretty good at investing. I've tried to get better at marketing and sales. And so, every piece of that, now if you're in the top 20% of those three different
0: categories, that's how you get to the top 1%. Definitely great advice. Um, thank you, Brennan, for the shout out, by the way. But no, James, exactly what you're saying is 100% true. And I would suggest everybody take heed to that advice. Because if you think about it, it's specifically what you said about where you get to in the future, right? Is based on what you're reading and what you're listening to. Think about it. If you don't feed your brain any new information, you're going to keep having the same thoughts over and over again. It's going to keep perpetuating and you're going to be on the same path. habits are never going to change. But all of a sudden, you invite um, new information, hopefully it's good information, right. Right, Um, you're going to be able to continue to evolve and continue to grow as a person and, you know, whether it's in business or your personal side of your life. Um, and you know, podcast is a great way to do it. When you're listening to two people speak or three people speak, have a conversation. It's definitely, definitely different uh, than just uh, I don't know, listen to
1: the radio or music. Especially real quick. Especially you know the marketing and sales piece, man. If you can figure that out, you can run. You, I don't, I don't want to say run. You can build any business with any product or any service if you can figure out how to add value to people that you don't even know exist and market it to people that you don't even know exist and drive leads funnel them down, get them to sign on. I mean, you can run any business. The marketing and the sales piece is something CPAs just totally right. forget about. They like to do the tax returns. They like to talk to clients and give the tax advice, which we all love to do too. Right. But you know, we also recognize that, hey, if we really want to grow this thing and grow it big and make a really big impact, we need to figure out this marketing and the sales engine, which is what Tom and I have been focused on. But yeah, it's 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 fun, too. It's just a completely different world.
2: (laughs) So uh, this guy has a small podcast. His name is Tim Ferriss. Uh, (laughs) He said, said, even if you do a project and it fails, as long as you gained skills and relationships, it did not fail. Because in marketing and sales, there's a bunch of trial and error. Right, like In accounting, you sort of know the deal. In financing, you sort of know the deal of what you're going to do. But in marketing and sales and promoting your business or yourself, your brand, there's a lot of stuff that you're going to fall flat on your face. But if you gain skills and relationships, then it was worth it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And in marketing too, the, the tough part about marketing is that it's not even like a monetary failure. I mean, yeah, you spend money and you you can lose sure. money doing different marketing. We've definitely, I've lost like $30,000 to it. That's a different story, but mm-hmm. I've lost a lot of money with some marketing, right? But the what's even worse is the time that you spend sure. that you lose because something fails. But it's still, though, at the at the same time, it's like, okay, well, I've figured out now what works, what doesn't work. And I've tried it this way, and I've given it an honest shot for six to eight months. And I've learned a lot in the process, but yeah, totally agree. Have cool. you guys heard of Seth Godin? Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I love his book, The Dip. Mm. And when you are in that dip and you're deciding, should I quit or should I ride this through? It becomes very difficult. But that six to eight months, I mean, my dips are a lot quicker than that right now. On, on the marketing and sales side. Um, if something doesn't work after a couple months, I usually bail on it but if you were able to try something for six to eight months um, hats off to you. Yeah.
0: I mean I just I just speak on the dip real quick and we'll, we'll wrap it up for today but the dip um, for sure when you're doing marketing uh, it, consistency is key um, and you know you're not always going to see the results within the first you know three months maybe maybe not even within the first six months. I mean we were doing this podcast now since September 2018. Okay. And you know now we're starting to pick up some, you know, traction. The momentum is picking up quite uh, substantially. And it, it's hard to think about when you're doing the work, you're putting in all this effort and you're not seeing the results. It's very hard to stick to it. But just realize that especially in today's environment that if you're going to be doing any type of marketing, consistency, you got to if you're going to release a podcast, you got to do it once a week or once a month. You just got to be consistent with the same thing with the blog and just ride that dip out. Now, I mean if you're in that dip for a year, you might want to consider <laughs> something else.
2: But yeah, I mean, uh, Seth Godin's done his blog for 10 years. And he likes to say not one blog post was viral, right? Like not one of them went viral. It was just the consistent drip by drip by drip.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of CPAs out there that uh, I know this is kind of off topic, but a couple of these big mastermind groups, all these other CPA firm owners, and they give up after two, three months of trying something. And the problem is that it's like Tom said. You just have to have the consistency. You have to be able to stick with it. If it's costing you a lot of money, obviously it's a different <laughs> different sort of issue, right? right? But yeah, some people just give up too soon. I, I remember when I first started this business. It's like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. It was like seven months of me posting on Bigger Pockets inside the forums, answering tax questions. I did it because I loved it. I didn't even right. read, I yeah. didn't even know I was marketing. But it was about seven months before the very first person. Messaged me and was like, "Are you taking on clients?" And I, like, and I remember I told him, "No, I'm not. I don't want to take on clients." And here we are. But uh, yeah, so it was a long time. It just the advice that I like to give to new business owners regarding marketing is find something that you like talking about sure. and talk about it consistently for 12 months, and you will have a business after that. Mm. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Dom. Let's wrap this thing up. <laughs> All right. So, James, I know
0: we got a little off topic here, um, but it's actually pretty fun. We should maybe consider doing some uh, some other stuff like this. But anyway, James, how can our listeners get in touch with you if uh, you know they need a loan? I guess the question I should ask before that is just to clarify, Does Old Capital only work in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, or are you guys? Uh, no.
2: So we can actually we we do loans nationwide. And so people call us from all over the place. Um, I'm based in Dallas. We have people down in Austin, San Antonio, who serve that market and then also Houston. So, um, but I'm based in Dallas, can do loans nationwide. You know, the best way I'll just give my uh, email, I guess, would probably be the easiest. And then I'll give some websites for you to track stuff down. Uh, J E N G at oldcapitallending.com is the email. Um, I have. Sort of my own personal website at tx as in texas multifamily.com. And then if you just search sort of multifamily finance on YouTube, I got a couple of videos on there so you can subscribe to my channel. And I've done four or five different webinars. And if you are at all interested in financing, each one of those is like an hour. And so we get into the weeds on that type of stuff. And that's usually the best way to uh, find me. And then obviously, our podcast is Old Capital Podcast. And we've been doing that for about five years now.
0: Awesome. So I'll drop uh, your email along with some of those links um, into the the show notes below for everybody who's listening. If you want to contact James, definitely recommend doing that um, if you're in the multifamily space. And then that's a wrap for today. Thanks for coming on the show again, James.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, guys.
0: Are you ready to take your real estate investing business to the next level? Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 27th to June 29th has something for everyone. With a stellar lineup of expert speakers with proven track records for success, learn from the best and apply everything directly to your multifamily business. Speakers include Dan Hanford, Joe Fairless, Kathy Fetke, Matt Faircloth, Ben Labelich, Michael Blanc, our very own tax strategist, Thomas Costelli, and many more. Don't miss this incredible event designed specifically for today's brightest and boldest multifamily investors. Visit www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to receive $100 off the full access pass. Again, that's www.apartmentevent.com and use the promo code THOMAS for $100 off the full access pass.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show.